0: back to another episode of e-commerce on Tap, brought to you by Sourceify. I'm your host, Nathan Resnick, and today we're joined by Justin Brown, the Chief Supply Chain Officer of Dollar Shave Club. Justin, thanks so much for coming on.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Nathan. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So I want to get right to it because I know you just spent, was it a month in Israel at your vertically integrated factory where I think the majority of Dollar Shave Club razors are produced. Is that right?
1: That is correct.
0: So how did that facility come to be, right? And I think a lot of supply chain leaders question, should I vertically integrate? Should I not? What was that decision like at Dollar Shave Club? And how did that facility come to be in Israel of all places?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's something that we are asked. I am asked a lot, quite frankly. And really the core reasons for our being there are a couple of fold. And one is there is an amount of engineering talent in in the industry, in Israel in particular, that we were able to take advantage of. You have years and years of experience, specifically within the razor manufacturing industry itself. In addition to that, it's a hot, dry, arid climate. It obviously bodes well for a manufacturing process that rust is a real enemy as part of the overall assessment in terms of of geographic locations we looked at. And then we had some benefits in working with the Israeli government directly, quite frankly, that also helped us to land on this location. It is literally halfway around in the world, but in terms of the overall sourcing strategy for us, it works quite well. And, and then lastly, because we are vertically, vertically integrated and it is our facility, our assets, our employees, we are incredibly competitive from a cost standpoint versus looking at a third party manufacturer just as an example.
0: Got it. Thanks for that overview. I'm curious, at what stage do you think it makes sense for a brand to vertically integrate? Is it the $100 million a year mark? Is it quarter billion? What kind of scale do you think it makes sense to look at verticalization? Or is it a lot smaller? Can you vertically integrate at $5-10 in revenue?
1: It's a great question. I don't think it's the quarter billion dollar mark. I think you can look at vertically integrating way earlier than that. I'd say the 100 million mark probably makes some sense from a logical threshold standpoint. And it also depends on what you're looking for. We're not vertically integrated across 100% of our supply chain. We are primarily vertically integrated when you think about distribution and warehousing, as well as manufacturing, obviously, for our Razor products. But we've deliberately chosen for some other areas like non-Razor products, as an example, where we're still outsourcing some of that activity. And it all comes down to volumes, the potential cost that you think you can leverage versus what's out in the market. And so it's not as simple as just one particular threshold, although I think there's some legitimacy to that in terms of the scale you need to justify standing up your own asset base, your own employee base. But for us, it's been a bit of a mix. But I'd say we started looking at it over the course of our history Pretty early on. I mean, as you can imagine, when we first started 10 plus years ago, everything was third-party managed, obviously, but it only took a couple of years for us to realize even in the initial trajectory of growth, where we were approaching that 100 to 150 million marker or or whatever it was back in those days to where it made sense. Again, specific to the function you're looking at, like warehousing and distribution, as an example. And so that's just the way we've always thought about it and continue to, to look at opportunities.
0: Makes sense. What kind of cost analysis did your team take when thinking about verticalization? Obviously you're then cutting out your third party suppliers or some of them, but you're then having to negotiate with the raw materials and make sure you're managing cash flow very effectively dealing with your raw material suppliers. Of cost savings standpoint, did you look at it? If you can give us a ballpark in terms of with verticalization, I feel that you need to save X percentage and then it makes sense. Or have you looked at it in a different lens?
1: Yeah, no, it's not. Cost is obviously a huge driver and the cost benefit must be meaningful or significant enough to really go down the path of, of making the investment and in, in resources and time and effort. Somewhere in the 20 to 30 percent range, I think, is a meaningful type of savings opportunity that should justify looking into something a bit more deliberately than maybe just a passing glance. The other thing, though, in addition to cost is also flexibility and control, right? And so when you have a different level of control from a processing standpoint, quality, flexibility on future product development, ideation, things like that. When you own the IP, you own the assets, when they're your own employees, it it gives you a level of speed and flexibility that maybe you wouldn't otherwise have with a, a purely outsourced operation. So... That's the way we we typically look at it, even within the supply chain and development side. So it's not just all about cost.
0: Makes sense. I'm curious about the development side, right? Because in most e-commerce brands, the development side is hand in hand with their third party supplier. And so it's this kind of collaborative process. And it sounds like you've verticalized development as well when it comes to your product offering. And it sounds like that falls under your supply chain team as well. And so I'm curious when it comes to product development, how have you found different unlocks and really strategized around product development, knowing that you're going to own the manufacturing of that product and it's not a third party that then has to figure out how to manufacture that product at scale?
1: Yeah, it's a bit of a shared responsibility internally within the construct of our organization. But I'd say, it, it again, it's a bit of a mix where, you know, from the razor side of things, which is obviously the bread and butter of our business, we have vertically integrated that entire operation. And We've also, through the talent we have internally, have the ability to have a a continuous flow of development opportunity and, and ideation that really allows us to bring things to life in a different and maybe faster, less bureaucratic way. With that said, we do keep some relationships with other product formats where maybe volumes don't justify the same type of approach. Where there is a bit of a relationship and co-development approach with some third party manufacturers that we also still have relationships with. So it's a bit of a hybrid. It's a bit of a mix. But again, based on the overwhelming volume share of, of our business, it is razor specific. And that's something that we've intentionally chosen to have internally just to help with overall speed and creativity.
0: Makes sense. We've seen a lot of supply chain leaders make some different strategic bets, given the current climate of e-commerce, whether it be different in terms of the growth that we've seen over the COVID years, right? E-commerce grew so quickly. Now it's stabilized a bit. It's still growing, but not growing at the same tick that it was. What are some few strategic bets that you've made this year, last year that are coming to fruition that you think would be relevant for other leaders in the space and how your team has thought about them?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and I think the way that I and my team and we've approached it, it's not rocket science, but it's more about everything we've learned since the beginning of the pandemic, really, and the explosion, to your point, we had four to five years worth of projected e-commerce growth that hit us in six months. (laughs) It really put a strain as everyone knew on the global supply chain. And there was a huge and still is a huge reliance on China as an example, who's been a a good partner for a lot of industry, including ours. But we've taken intentional decisions to look at new regions of sourcing, as an example, for certain product formats or materials. And even some of our own internal manufacturing and co-packing operations. And we've looked to move some of those things around to different parts of the globe outside of China as one example to give ourselves a bit more flexibility and responsiveness when you know you have some of these unforeseen fluctuations and quite frankly when you're looking to leverage costs in a different way so we've definitely had a lot of that activity uh, that we've driven over the past couple of years that has really en- en- enabled us to have a bit more a bit better speed to market, a bit better from a cost-based perspective. And it just gives us the level of flexibility that we're comfortable with. And so that's one thing for sure. And then we're constantly looking at that. The other thing is, as we continue to look at opportunities to leverage you know, an optimized cost and speed to market element of our U.S.-based direct-to-consumer business, we spend a lot of time and effort in looking at continuing to invest in automation and process improvement within the sites. For us, it's a balance. We don't go over the top in terms of investing in a lot of hard automation that isn't as flexible to where, for our business, we, we like to keep a level of what I would consider semi-automated, where you have a degree of, of, of human labor that allows you to flex in different ways, and different work areas within the sites, but supplemented by some new technology, whether it's through software, new capabilities to manage inventory for visibility, To keep a pulse on shipping and so we've really looked at the semi-automation in our fulfillment centers along with some software upgrades from a technology platform standpoint that's allowed us just to continue to grow and to continue to cut costs out at every step that we can while still satisfying consumer expectations
0: makes sense i think a lot of supply chain teams were caught off guard with the exposure they had to china obviously during covid when supply chains were in flux and also even before that during the tariff increases and quote-unquote trade wars that the U.S. had with China. I'm curious, how has your team actually navigated diversifying outside of China with some of the third-party suppliers that you work with? Are you sending people all over the world to go audit and verify these third-party suppliers? What does that process actually look like? Because I think even right now, a lot of teams are still looking to diversify outside of China, and it's really hard to navigate because there aren't resources like alibaba or global sources or some of these marketplaces to get a starting point in these other countries and you really from my experience either need boots on the ground or a sourcing team or some other resource to get the ball rolling in some of these other countries when it comes to finding and auditing and working with third-party suppliers
1: yeah that's a good question and, and it's exactly that you said it while we are a small and mighty team i would say we're small and scrappy and pride ourselves on that but we do It starts with research right and it starts with research and we've done a a really nice job i would say and we've been intentional with the talent acquisition strategy we've had within supply chain over the last couple of years dollar shave club historically is a startup high growth fast start company that's only been around for just over 10 years we've intentionally brought a lot of industry experts into the supply chain who have big company experience whether it's unilever procter and gamble johnson and johnson sc johnson and so we brought some people in who really know what best practice looks like from a mass scale industry standpoint. So that's the first thing. And so starting with research and people's networks, they already have. And then as we look at assessing different suppliers, yeah, we're flying people to China. Honestly, even when we had to take different takes around, maybe investigating different suppliers, even in China or different parts of the world, like Mexico, as an example, as we look for different um, supply base and supplier of operations. And so that's really how we do it. It, it's, It's not rocket science. Again, I've said that already, but that's a straightforward approach to people who know what they're doing from an industry standpoint, doing the research and then going to these sites to figure out what may work better than what you currently have
0: today. Makes sense. Supply chain covers so much. I'm curious, Justin, what's your favorite part of the supply chain?
1: That's a big question. To be honest, these days it's a lot about what we're talking about. To be on, in terms of the role I have and what I'm responsible for, it's continuing to find and assess your options to drive improvement, drive out cost, and continue to delight the customer in the best way possible. And so as you get to explore new technology, new capability, and you find that there's still so much opportunity out there to leverage a different cost base, to leverage different capabilities and find what that next big thing is that could help your particular business model is the thing that really excites me and saving a ton of money while improving performance is awesome. It's fun. And, and you also get to make a lot of great relationships along the way and working with different providers and, and getting a sense of different levels of experience in the industry, but really driving that kind of change and, and seeing it come immediately after you've implemented the process is really exciting for me.
0: That's awesome. I'm curious from a leader standpoint, what are the main metrics you track in your supply chain, especially because you verticalize so much, whether it be production out of Israel, whether it be the third party suppliers, whether it be some of your distribution or fulfillment centers, do you have a main kind of dashboard where you're keeping a pulse on metrics, either daily or weekly or monthly? What are the main metrics that you're looking at with this size of a supply chain?
1: Of of course, not to get too far into the weeds, but obviously within each function we have Across the total supply chain, we're looking at our performance metrics on a monthly basis at minimum. We have other metrics that we have access to daily and weekly. As an example, shipping, shipping times and shipping efficiency coming out of our FCs, given that the U S is 90% of the global business for us today. We want to make sure that we're providing the level of service to the customer base here from an on-time delivery standpoint, from an order frequency standpoint, looking at shipping performance. Obviously your standard customer service, inventory availability, inventory levels from a financial investment standpoint. And then of course, cost is always something we're looking at. So how are we managing labor? How are we managing efficiencies in the factories? Continuously looking at margins, your cost per units in terms of your production and your order processing. And so those would be the primary things that I am concerned about because obviously all of that has a direct effect on the overall P and L of the total business. Something we look at very closely.
0: Makes sense. As we wrap up here on e-commerce on tap, one question that I like to end with is what is a hard lesson that you're grateful that you've learned? I know you've been in supply chain for a while across large organizations like Unilever and now running supply chain at Dollar Shave Club. Is there a hard lesson that comes to mind that you think uh, others would learn from?
1: Oh, I think uh, it's probably the same thing that a lot of us learned over the COVID pandemic. And it's something that Unilever has been adamant about for a long time. And that's continuing to be deliberate in your investment in responsiveness and flexibility. And so where you have single points of failure in the network, uh, as an example, how are you preparing and continuously looking at those types of single points of failure proactively to ensure you have a strategy that allows you to respond to conditions in the market that you just don't know of yet. So COVID is a prime example. It caught a lot of us completely off guard with the spike in demand and volume. And now you would hope that an event like that is not going to happen for another hundred years or so within that kind of impact that it had around the globe. But Constantly looking at ways to have redundancies in the supply chain, ways to have responsiveness increasing anywhere that you can uh, is important. And I'd say so to to your question, so how has that caught us off guard? I think it, it goes back to just a small example from maybe one of my previous stops where understanding the pattern of behavior from customers, Amazon in particular, has been... A challenge to get your hands wrapped around in the past in terms of forecast accuracy. And so going off the traditional model of just forecasting and then buying against the forecast where we were wrong so constantly and continuously running out of stock. And so we thought of it differently in terms of going to more of an inventory-based strategy to protect against so much volatility that we're seeing, but it took us a really long time to get into a different mindset of thinking about how we should be supplying from an inventory standpoint to manage against a level of forecast variability. So anyway, really specific example, but overall, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of unfortunate experiences when it comes to that type of thing that going forward, as you continue to look at ways to think differently about how you forecast, how you look at redundancies is I guess what I'd say since.
0: Got it. Thank you for sharing. Justin, thank you for coming on e-commerce on tap. If people want to follow you or get in touch, where can they find you?
1: Uh, Yeah. LinkedIn profile uh, there it's under my name, Justin Brown. Dollar Shave Club, pretty easy to find and yeah, that's what I'd say.
0: Awesome. Thank you again. And thank you everyone for tuning in to this episode of e-commerce on tap brought to you by Sourcefy.